You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Her money is on an exciting field trip this week. We are recording this episode from Washington, D.C. We're at the AARP Family Caregiving Summit. For those of you who don't know this, I've been part of the AARP family for more than five years now as the association's financial ambassador, and that means writing a column for the magazine and covering everything from retirement to social security to the subject that we are focusing on today. One of AARP's goals is to make the big responsibilities of family caregivers a little bit easier, which is why there are so many wonderful thought leaders here today to talk about the state of caregiving from political, technological, professional, personal, and financial standpoints. And we're going to talk with three of them, actress and activist Holly Robinson-Pete, Care.com CEO Sheila Marcello, and author, journalist, my friend, and wonderful human being, Lee Woodruff, is where we're going to kick it off. Thank you for Hi, taking Jean. a few minutes. Hi. It's always good to see you. It's really good it's to like see you, too. like visiting a girlfriend. I know. I, I know. want to it's get all my advice from you, not just financial. Oh, please. Oh, please. I, I'm going to get my fashion advice from you. So, Well, thank you. You are very... I'll tell you about my skirt later. Yeah, there you go. We were just commenting before we started chit-chatting about how beautiful it is to fly into Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. It is just... It's a regal, beautiful, low city. Lesson well, to New York. Note to New York. Yep. Keep it low. Yeah, uh, you Don't go through New York. Light. I was driving down the West Side Highway the other day. It's all, all tall, all I know. tall, we all love New buildings York, but going it, but up. Take a lesson from DC. Yeah, and I had a really, really good ride. You here, teased here. this for me, so I—I I mean, was it Brad Pitt? Talk <laughs> it was to me. not Brad Pitt. Talk to me. So, as a preface to this, my husband and I on Sunday we opened the New York Times. And we read in the Metropolitan section about taking a day trip to Westport. And the lead in this story was this seafood shack of a sort where they make Connecticut-style lobster rolls, which for people who don't know are very different from other lobster rolls. There's no mayo. It's a warm lobster roll. There is a lot of butter, and usually it's on like a brioche-style bun. Really? Yes. And it's like a big slab of lobster, or is it it's, chopped up? It's chopped up. I've okay. had it both ways, but okay. it's chopped up usually. And it said that it's better in the winter because the lobster is sweeter in the winter. So we got in the car. And we went you, to Westport. Oh, my gosh. That's the power of news, we, right? <laughs> we got in the car. We had nothing to do. He was like, will we be back by four so I can watch football? And uh, we got in the car. We went to Westport. And I tell you that just to tell you that I'm a little food obsessed. And so when I got the seat next to Danielle Balloon, 
I I know. Oh man. I know. And I so I had a we had, we chit-chatted the entire, the entire time. Way. Did you talk about the lobster roll? I told him about the lobster yeah. roll and he asked where I was eating last night cuz I was meeting a friend for college for dinner. He was going to one of his restaurants in the city and Did you get a gift card or anything? Did you sort of say, "Hey, I, I got his I got his business card. Okay. Better than a gift card. Better yeah. than a gift card. Yeah. Absolutely. So I know. So that was and really better fun. than Brad Pitt. I'm sorry, but yeah. food is love, right? It is. Yeah. It is. And it's especially love, I would think, to turn the subject back when you're a caregiver. Yeah. Food right? is important for that. Sustenance basics. And right? yeah, and the food that you grew up with, my twenty three year old who will kill me for telling this story, was um, home over Thanksgiving, got a stomach bug came home, laid on my couch, and the first thing he wanted to eat was matzo ball soup. He was like, can you make me some matzo ball soup? And I, I keep that stuff in my house. So the answer was yes. Because you're a mama. And I just saw a news report that said that they have verified the you know, remedial whatever, the help that chicken, real chicken soup and matzo ball soup, I assume, by extension, is real chicken to soup. inflammation, yeah. all these other flu-like symptoms. It is actually a scientific fact now. Well, that is just amazing. So my mother was right. She taught you well. Many people, I think, are familiar with your story that um, back in 2006, your husband Bob was severely wounded by a roadside bomb when he was on assignment in Iraq. And let me let me let you take us back. Yeah, I mean, my gosh, I think there are lots of people who don't remember anymore because we have such a short news cycle. Uh, but Bob had been named the ABC uh, nightly news, evening news anchor, um, after Peter Jennings died so suddenly. And he was on, let's say, his ninth trip to Iraq. He'd been embedded during the war. We'd been through the worst part of that. He was there for a State of the Union report. And he was just on a simple roadside excavation, you know, sortie with the Army. And a roadside bomb went off. It was a really heightened time of the war for improvised explosive devices. And he really should have died. Everything about our story is miraculous, but he suffered a severe traumatic brain injury, coma six weeks. Take it, the quick work of the military medics and docs and the team that was around him saved his life, got his skull off to prevent the swelling and brain death. And he's back. He's back on the air. He's covering Dennis Rodman going to North. He's somewhere in Tokyo doing that story today. So he will miss Hamilton with oh, us tomorrow night. Oh, Honey, I miss no. you. I'll say I'm selling your ticket though. Too oh expensive. my God. Um, I'll take it, it by the way. Will you? Okay. I might I've seen it twice. Okay. But I it's, wish it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. People say that. But in that process, I became as the mother of four and my twins were five at the time. My father had just been pretty seriously diagnosed with dementia to the point that they'd moved back to the East Coast a month earlier. So I was preparing to be taking care of him with my sisters, and boom, life happens in an instant. How is Bob now? He's fine? He is fine. Anybody that's had a traumatic brain injury will tell you life doesn't ever go back to exactly what it was. Bob is incredibly back to who he was, but he um, would tell you he, he has word-finding issues, mild aphasia which is more with nouns and names and anybody over 55 says that. <laughs> Can relate. But, right. <laughs> but it is different. And he, uh, you know, he would, he probably gets fatigued a little more easily, but compared to so many of the veterans and the folks I know, because we started a foundation, the Bob Woodruff Foundation that helps injured vets from post 9-11 war, his symptoms are so incredibly uh, minimal for a man who should be dead. 
who had lived with half of his skull off for four months. So it's kind of crazy. How did your life change in the aftermath of that? I mean, you were preparing for one type of caregiving, thrown into a totally different type of caregiving. So how did you cope with that? Yeah, well, I when we talk in our panel, our girlfriend panel, I will talk about the negation of your own health, which... Uh, Senator Collins was mentioning just in the panel earlier, I, I had to put everything about myself on hold for at least a year, which is about the period of time where I could let my breath out. Um, you move through with an adrenaline that carries you until you crash. And that's a part that most caregivers don't often talk about. I went on antidepressants. Um, I went off all alcohol, not that I was a big drinker anyway, but I needed to just... I would only eat super healthy foods. I just needed to be sort of like a warrior. And then when I could see that Bob was getting better, everything inside me just collapsed, even the grief part of it. And we talked about health earlier, but all of my doctor's appointments got pushed aside. Yeah. So I remember sitting at a stoplight and um, feeling, ooh, there's something in my gut, which turned out to be an orange-sized tumor, <gasps> which turned out to not be cancer, but they really thought it was initially. Oh my God. Um, and I really believe, and I think many other folks will tell you, that was where all that angst got stuffed. That was the stress. There might have been some little cells that might have been fought off in good times, and whatever that stress did. So I ended up with major surgery, glad to not have it be cancerous, but it's a pretty typical caregiver story, I think. Well, so what do you tell the 43 million family caregivers? I mean, we, we don't say no to these things. You know, it's they talk so much, and they were talking upstairs, Susan Collins, Senator Susan Collins was, was on the panel earlier and talking about the sandwich generation mm -hmm. and how, you know, we often have to take care of older parents at the same time we're taking care of our kids. Yet when it comes to the kids, sometimes you can say to the kids, there's financial aid for that, or you can handle that yourself. You can step up. We can't do that with our parents. Or a special needs child, or some. when somebody is truly in need of care, you can't say no. You can't say no. And as you know, as a woman, most of us just keep stuffing our sacks until they're just so full because we don't know how to say no. Or can we envision it? I actually don't like to think of it as the sandwich generation. I like to think of it as the panini generation because I think <laughs> there's just a whole bunch of ham and cheese getting melted in the middle there and smushed down um, because something's always, you know, unable to give. And, and um Wow, what do you tell? I get asked that so many times. I'm what sure. do you tell people? We had every resource. ABC News paid for everything additional rehab, flights to go see him. His parents were flown in, and still we struggled. So, Financially? Uh, no, emotionally. Okay. And just energy wise and hope wise oh. at times. So, you're talking about financially. I don't even know how to begin to answer that question because we didn't face those issues. My folks still came from the generation where my dad had, you know, his retirement plan and health benefits. Yeah. We're never going to have that. You Ever. talk about that all the time in your columns and what, you know, how to prepare and save for that. What do you tell the 43 million people out there? I tell them to get on the page where at least you can sort of understand what is going to be expected of you financially. So we know that of those caregivers, about 92% of them are financial caregivers in one way or another. Either they're providing financial resources or they're providing financial management. They're paying the bills. They're taking care of the investment portfolio. And I think expectations are 
a huge part of this. If you can know what's likely coming down the pike for you, then at least you can set yourself up to deal with it. But if it if you don't know, then you're going to be blindsided. And I think that that speaks also to the resilience and the adaptability of the human spirit. Tell us the bad news, and we'll begin to get our hands around it. But to your point, when you know what's coming and what you have to prepare for, it's so much easier emotionally to, to gird yourself for that battle. Absolutely. I want to talk about the CHIT system, which is something that you invented <laughs> that I think is brilliant. What's the CHIT system? The CHIT system is a little bit like when there's a car accident on the side of the road, and you're traveling down 95, and everybody slows. And on your ways, it goes from purple to red. And it's bad because everybody wants to look right in the beginning. But in the caregiving situation, that diagnosis, that accident, that what have you, that excitement, that need for us all to be in the living room ends pretty quickly. People go back to their life. So for everybody who says in that exciting time, um, and I say that sort of facetiously because it's not at all exciting for the family who's living it, uh, how can I help or what can I do? My advice was do you give everyone a chit and say, I don't know what it is right now, but I know I'm going to need you later. So can I call on you to do something? And just about everybody I've ever known is thrilled to do something. If it's three months later or somebody came over six months into it um, to look at my water, hot water heater, which had broken and Bob was asleep. I did not want to wake him for this. And so a friend's uh, husband came over and that was their chit. And when something happens in a family, because I've been in family, am I, you know, we've had, we've all had our stings, and people say, what can I do? There's never an answer, and there's never a right thing to say. So what I love about this is that it's a solution that makes everybody feel better about it. It does. And then you get to use it and operationalize it when you're ready without guilt, without being like, oh, I should call Roy, but I don't want to call him in the middle of the night. Roy's already said Call Jean, me. call me. Yeah. So you're okay to call him. That's perfect. Tell me a little bit about your work with military service members. Well, as I said earlier, Bob and I got such remarkable care, and we got the same care here in D.C. at Bethesda Naval Hospital at the time. Uh, it's now combined with Walter Reed that everybody else gets in that acute care stage. But where it really differs is when you uh, leave the military acute care stage and go back to your hometown. So all VAs are not necessarily created equal. And the VA, there's so many wonderful things about the VA. I'll be speaking with the secretary of the VA, David Shulkin, in a moment. But, you know, certain hospitals have better services for certain things than others. And oftentimes they're not in someone's hometown. So you may find yourself as a caregiver driving your injured son three hours to get to the local VA because that's the system they must use and stay within. So we just got so much ridiculous attention for our story, our book that came out, and it seemed really important to us to turn the light on those who weren't getting the attention. And uh, our foundation receives donations, and we work with small grassroots organizations and set up grants to help them do what they're doing in the areas of caregiving, 
of reemployment for those who can't go back into the military and need to work again, and for mental illness because suicide and, and depression, anxiety are huge issues post-war. So how can we help the foundation? BobWoodruffFoundation.org. You can learn more about what we do. $5 helps. We're doing some really innovative programming with people, and we're helping small, helping to stand up small organizations who want to get started. We've got everything from camp programs for children to service dogs. And as you know, there are more than 48,000 charities that claim to help veterans, and they're not all created equally. So we're sort of like the good housekeeping seal of approval, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. I hope you'll come back. I will come back. Gene. I'll come back over and over again. Excellent. You just keep batting those eyelashes at me oh, and well. Daniel Balloon, and you <laughs> had us at hello, girlfriend. <laughs> Lee Woodruff, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the fabulous Lee Woodruff as much as I did. Before we talk to Sheila Marcello of Care.com, I just want to take a minute to remind everyone that her money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We're working together to encourage all women to be in the front seat when it comes to their financial health. Why? Because women are in the driver's seat in so many aspects of our lives, managing careers, families, and yes, caregiving. Yet, when it comes to making decisions about money, too many women delegate to someone else. One thing is clear. When it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, what your goals are, and having an annual financial checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Now let me take you back to the AARP Family Caregiving Summit. Sheila Marcello is with me. She is the founder, chairman, CEO of Care.com, the world's largest online destination for finding and managing family care. You serve more than 26 million people across 20 countries, which is just amazing. Welcome. Thanks, Jean. Happy to be here. Oh, thank you for being here. You know, I want to go back a little bit. You founded Mm. Care.com in 2006. Mm -hmm. You were a young working mom. I met you around (laughs) that time trying to take care of your kids and your parents. You were sandwiched, Mm -hmm. as they like to say. What was going on and how did Care.com arise? You know, I got, Jean, I got pregnant in college between my sophomore and junior year. And my husband's parents were deceased, and my parents were in the Philippines. So we didn't really have a lot of options for help and found ourselves struggling at a young age through grad school and our careers. And then fast forward, when my I begged my parents to come to the United States to take care of our younger one, my father was carrying the baby up the stairs and fell backwards and had a heart attack. And I was 29 years old. And as you pointed out, sandwich. And it was a real struggle finding great care and found that millions of families beyond us needed support because we don't really have a care infrastructure in this country. And that really inspired me and my husband to really work hard to help foundcare.com. Have you been surprised at the way it's caught on? I mean, it's it's really been one of the the success stories of the last couple of decades. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not really a surprise in that uh, there's clearly a need, uh, but there certainly have been challenges along the way of scaling a company focused specifically in providing services for women. As one of the female founders, you know, in this dot-com bubble or boom, I guess it's not really a bubble at this point. But, you know, what were those challenges? 
I think the challenges were really focused around difficulty around fundraising um, in female-focused companies, and there weren't a lot of female VCs to also support female founders, few and far between. And I often got the question in the earlier days, well, why would I need Care.com after I found my nanny? Because it's a subscription service. And of course, fast forward, it's very interesting. Analysts still ask that question today as a public company because a majority of analysts are young men who don't have children or parental obligations for senior care. And so for them, they can't really fathom this specific company. Nowadays, it's more understandable for them as a concept of investing in the company because we've been eight quarters profitable. But it had to be a proof point before really believing on the actual need. Our listeners can't see me roll my eyes when you (laughs) said that, but anybody who's ever hired a nanny or a babysitter or care for an older parent knows you're not just one and done. It, it's it's, it's an always ongoing. a process. Correct. And it's interesting. As, you, as soon as you add a female analyst in the room, which is rare, I got this question once on a non-deal roadshow. She answered, wait a minute, why are we even answering this question? In the last eight months, I've found six great caregivers on care.com. Can we move on to the next question? But that's rare and few and far between. So how did you then raise the money? How, you know, having those sort of headwinds facing you, how did you succeed? I think even raising money, I did things that were not the typical male way to raise money. I didn't run an auction that was competitive. I wanted to get to know the investors early. I met with their partnership team. I wanted to understand their values, uh, get to know them better. Uh, Always raising money before you need it uh, is also really important. So I got uh, an opportunity to actually screen some terrific female rarely, and male investors who believed in the mission and the vision of Care.com. Fast forward a decade, a little more than a decade. What's it like to be a female founder and CEO now? I think there just continues to be challenges. And as much as I can, what keeps me going is to pay it forward and to be a role model wherever I can. And I think it troubles me. LinkedIn just published a a new survey that basically 3% of VCs don't think there's a diversity problem. And obviously, everything that's going on in Silicon Valley and broadly in the country, it's a problem. McKinsey just put out data last year that basically they believe that at the corner office, a lot of men don't believe there's a problem in the workplace for women to advance. But of course, most women do. So the fact that at the top, whether that's the funders in building companies from the get-go, as well as in the corner office for companies at scale, if men don't think there's a problem, yet they're the ones who are actually sponsors and mentors mm-hmm. to bring women up, then we've got a problematic issue. And often we, we, we talk, there's a binder problem, there's a missing binder of women, or there's a pipeline problem. Certainly that's the case. But if we want to support more women, we need more men to open their eyes. So in line with that, how are you bringing women up in your organization? And what do you say, these are two very different questions, we can take them one at a time, but what do you say to young women who want to run their own businesses? Very encouraging. I constantly, where I can, paid forward. Uh, Susan Line, who's a great mentor, advised me to have office hours. Uh, because the key thing is we speak at a lot of different places and women want to get advice. And so uh, how do we support them and provide access to our learnings and lessons? The other thing is I have now uh, invested and support female-founded companies. It allows me to also scale and support other female founders. So I'm a huge believer in uh, female entrepreneurs 
entrepreneurship because I think they change the landscape in influencing uh, culture, just the overall capitalist system that is, I think, dominated by men. When I'm out in front of a crowd, I can tell you the top three questions that I get, mm. and they have to do with finding a financial advisor mm. and how much allowance to give your kids and mm. whether couples should have separate bank accounts. Those mm. are my standards. Mm. Sometimes <laughs> long-term care insurance, but those right. are my top three. When women come to you during office hours, what do they ask? They ask, uh, what is it like to raise money? What's the strategy uh, to do that? Often I respond with having a very solid business plan and to, to really rely on their strengths and not apologize for that. Uh, and their leadership strengths of great listening, nurturing, and how do they bring their whole self uh, to work or whenever they're raising money. Uh, and, and I think that when they naturally attract investors who, who have an interest in who they are and the mission of what they're driving for, that's the right long-term investor, as opposed to looking at a term sheet on valuation alone. Let's switch it up a little bit and talk about the women who are your customers. Mm. You know, women, and, and I'm here at the AARP mm. Family Caregiving Summit with you today. We're both talking about the challenges that face caregivers, and mm. I'm, I'm specifically talking about the financial challenges and female caregivers. Mm. When women take a step back in order to become family caregivers with or without your, your services, it hurts us financially. How have you witnessed that in your consumer base, and, and do you provide help or advice in that area. Absolutely. You know, the data shows, Gina, you're precisely on an average, a 30-year-old who makes fifty-five dollars or $60,000 on average, if she takes off three years, just three years, it's about $500,000 that she's losing in her career. Uh, and that's income, retirement benefits, all of that. Uh, and if we think about caregivers, whether they're paid or unpaid, we don't value that as a society. I certainly think there are, we're moving in the right direction of trying to find overall credits to try and offset the cost of care. It's 20% of one of three families now, it's 20% of their income is the cost of care on child care. It doesn't factor even senior care is on the rise. So my advice is often really plan and budget for this because it's as big or as large as mortgage and rent now. So if you're not planning ahead, then it can really impact your career. And as much as you can, to stick with working part-time mm -hmm. despite the challenges of finding caregiving and trying to find creative solutions like nanny sharing, finding different options that make it affordable. I'm a huge believer in family daycare. When we were graduate students, my husband and I leveraged the community to help care for our kids. And it's an affordable solution. And you're also helping a low-income family to leverage converting her home to be an entrepreneur. And for I've seen it. For every dollar that you invest in a family daycare, it's $20 she gives back to the community. So I'm a big believer in caregivers and finding ways to support them. The downside as I look about the gig economy, though, is that we don't provide enough of a social net. I totally agree with you. There are no benefits. There's no retirement security. So the, the shortcut that often families take, and because of the norm of paying under the table, I often advise families to pay above board, to pay fair livable wages, because in the end, it's the long term, and you want a caregiver to stay with you. If 90% of your child's brain development is formed between zero and four years old, the quality of care matters. On a personal level, 
and sometimes I get frustrated when I get this question, but I'm going to ask it of you anyway. Mm. You've started an incredibly successful and run an incredibly successful now publicly traded company mm. while raising a family. Mm. How? It's certainly doable, but with a lot of help. And that means also letting go of the guilt and the ego and saying, hey, uh, I've got a great partner or spouse who's willing to help. And even if it means not the traditional norms and roles to, to make it happen and to not be insecure about that, I think that's important to have an incredible team in the company and to share the same values that we all value family. We don't start meetings until 9.30 or 10 because guess what? Moms have early morning drop-offs. Or we don't have meetings after 5 p.m. because some people have to rush to daycare. You're so going to get a lot of resumes. <laughs> <laughs> so we really have to figure out modern families and make sure that it works. I, I've heard you say that being a mom can actually help you in your career. Mm. Can you explain? Absolutely. I think moms in, in the tendency to juggle a lot focuses on efficiency, but also on the strength of nurturing and to really embrace that. And it's absolutely okay to bring that to work. And I think it differentiates you in this day and age, especially what millennials are looking for in terms of a modern leader. Before I let you go, I want to get right at the heart of finding care. And mm. so I've got a few scenarios mm. and I'd like to just run through sure. them in terms of your advice, having done this for such a long time about finding the best care for your solution. So mm. if you are a parent looking for childcare, mm. what are the boxes you got to check off? You got to make sure that it meets your specific needs. Certainly your next door neighbor might have a terrific caregiver, but that's a specific personality fit for your next door neighbor. So I think it's looking for the right caregiver that meets your needs and your family's needs, whether that's multilingual, the schedule that fits, and also making sure that from a budgetary perspective, you're planning, planning, planning ahead. The other thing we provide advice on care.com is never take shortcuts when it comes to safety. I'm a big believer in auditing, surprise visits, checking in and making sure this caregiver is a fit and you feel really comfortable running background checks, but also doing these surprise visits to just make sure that it's, it's exactly the kind of care you're looking for. How do you feel about cameras? I'm supportive of nanny cams. I think it works as long as you're transparent with your caregiver. That is something that you're comfortable with, especially with uh, dependents like seniors who may be, you know, who have dementia or Alzheimer's and not are not able to communicate regularly, as well as with children who aren't speaking yet. I think it's important to also understand what the dynamics are in the home. If you're adult children and you're looking for a caregiver for an older parent, hmm. perhaps somebody far away, are there different things that you need to have on your list? Yeah, I think the value of care.com is being able to factor in that your parent wants to age in place and you are working and living somewhere else now with your family, which a majority of families do in the United States and constantly moving. So it's looking for care that fits your parental need. And one of the biggest things that's uh, searched for in care.com is actually language, because especially with Alzheimer's and dementia on the rise and speaking, we're at AARP conference, a lot of elderly go back to their traditional mother tongue. And so finding the care that makes your parents feel comfortable and to age with respect and dignity is the way to go. Sheila Marcello, thank you so much. Thanks, Jean. Hey again, before our final interview, I want to point you in the direction of an additional caregiving resource. I recently did a webcast on caregiving for Fidelity, and you can watch it for free 
at fidelity.com slash loved ones. That's fidelity.com slash loved ones. I am sitting with Holly Robinson Pete, who I have known for, gosh, I, I mean, it, it's since Oprah and Friends. For sure. So that's going back to like almost 10, ten years, ten like years. nine or 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And Holly is, as I mean, everybody knows, but you're a mother of four, you're an actress, you're an author, you're a philanthropist, and you are an advocate for both autism and Parkinson's disease, both of which are very close to me. My father had Parkinson's before he died. My nephew has autism, and I think the work that you do with the Holly Rod Foundation is just wonderful. So oh, thank, thank you for you. that. Thank you. And thank you for taking a few minutes. You got it. So when you stood up today to welcome the crowd and to share a little bit of your story, what message were you looking to get across? I was basically looking to get across a message of um, sharing and compassion awareness, and just kick off this Family Caregiver Summit in a way, you know, from a perspective of a caregiver who's thirsty for information. Because when I first became a caregiver, there was very little information and certainly very few summits like this. So I wanted to sort of be, not a fan is not a good word, but like an advocate, but I'm someone who's still learning about caregiving. And I wish that I had known or had the tools that I have today. Um, now that my father's gone and my son is, you know, um, an adult, I still have my mom and I, I, I'm still picking up tools. So kind of just uh, I'm here as a student in a way. I think many people think about caregiving and we think about older children mm-hmm. caregiving for their parents or older individuals caregiving for their spouses. You were 19 years old. Yeah. I was a freshman in college, and you know how confusing being a freshman in college is anyway. And then my dad was so young, and Parkinson's just um, came through in the prime of his life. And it was a really difficult, dark time because there there weren't seminars like this. There wasn't any internet, really, so yeah. didn't have a lot of resources. Many people know your dad even if they don't know that they know your dad because <laughs> he was yeah. the original Gordon on Sesame Street. He was. What a cool legacy. Sesame Street just turned 48. And, I mean, just the full circleness of, like, him being uh, the original Gordon and just being five years old when he got that job. I mean, imagine that's the coolest gig ever that it, your dad could ever get. Right. I mean, you <laughs> got to go and meet I Cookie did. Monster yes, and, and Big Bird. And Ernie and Bert and Oscar all the old the school Muppets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that was an amazing experience so that when, when my dad got sick, you know, and being only 19, it was my obligation to take care of him, but I was also starting my own life out as well. So there are people in that situation today. I mean, how do you manage to get through college, have a career while taking care of somebody else? How do you not put your entire life on hold? Well, you know, I look at my life like a big plate of food, you know, like some, that's where that famous you know, analogy comes from, um, too much stuff on your plate, but I just, you know, I just, I feel like I just need a a portion of everything, right? And if there's something that's not working for me, then I can just, you know, or I don't like the taste of it, I can wipe it off my plate. When it comes to your, your loved ones and caregiving, I mean, you really don't have any choice. 
You just have to get to work taking care of the people that you love, especially when they really only have you to advocate for them. And that was the case with my dad. I have an older brother, but you know, when siblings, there's always that sibling that's a little bit more nurturing. There's the one. And you I, were the one. And Matt, you know, was great and he's awesome, but you know, he didn't have that, that chip. Um, that happens a lot with siblings when there's multiple siblings where it's like, which one's the one that's, you know, oh, Holly's got it, you know, because she's such a multitasker and she can handle it. And um, I what guess... What is it they say, right? They say if you want something done, you ask a busy person. Right. Right. You do it yourself. Yeah. If you know that, you know, you know, you know what your loved one needs. And I felt so connected to my dad. And with Parkinson's, you know, it's not, it's, it's, medication, it's understanding the disease during a time where we didn't know a lot about it yet. Um, there's so many factors that, that, that um, you have to figure out. And again, remember I was only 19, so it was hard and I didn't have a lot of information and I just kind of pushed my way through it. When I met Rodney and married him and then ended up having, starting having kids, you know, we had more resources and, you know, Muhammad Ali and Michael J. Fox started being the faces of Parkinson's and we just had so much more stuff there to work with. But I don't know, how do you do it all in life anyway? But then when something comes along like this, you just find that place within yourself to take care of your loved one because they need you. You don't have a choice. It feels to me like you were on the very steep incline of the curve with Parkinson's, mm -hmm. and then again with autism. Right. I mean, your son was born with autism when we were not talking about autism. I mean, you were one of the first people I remember speaking out about it. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I think I was just because we have so many more platforms now. You know, I, I talk to other parents of kids with autism that are, you know, in their 30s and 40s now, the adults, and I say, wow, like, what was it like for you? during when your son was, you know, four, five, six, seven, and no one knew what this thing was. But ironically, in 2000, when RJ was diagnosed, it was like there was still very little information. I felt like this is Parkinson's all over again. There's no information. There's very little awareness. Like, what, what are we doing here? Yet the prevalence was growing and growing. Yeah, that sandwich generation thing is no joke. Being able to, trying to manage, taking care of my dad, um, not wanting to put him in a home, wanting to keep him in my home, mm -hmm. and raising my son at the same time. And he was a twin, so having two babies and the my dad who was getting falling towards a dementia phase of Parkinson's, it was especially hard. But we, you know, we're, we're we're resilient. You know, we just we push through. We do what we have to do, and then we think about it later. Go, how did how did I do that? Because you had to. Yeah, I think that's but true. But I will say this though, Jean, I wish I'd asked for help. In I wish what I had way? Asked for and help. and how? I mean, you were you were talking about um, resources, mm -hmm. having the financial resources mm -hmm. to get through it. A lot of people are not as fortunate as we are and, right. and need help where that is concerned. But also information. And I was watching you in the earlier sessions. You are still a student. You oh, were yeah. sitting there and taking notes. So how do you ask for help, and how do you find the right help? Well, you got to build a team. You build a you know a team around you for any issue that you have, but. Certainly, um, the Parkinson's team I had around me was, you know, involved doctors and educators and different dot orgs that I connected myself with. So I really learned and felt like I had people around me that understood what Parkinson's was, that could tell me and share with me and other families experiencing it, et cetera. But with RJ, with my son, you have to, um, we had a team RJ that was very strong. It involved getting my 
husband on board because he went into a denial. There's a whole thing with, you know, fathers of kids with autism that don't always process the diagnosis well. So mm-hmm. we went through that. I say you just open your mouth and say, I can't do all of this. I've got to take care of myself. I'm getting run down, burning the candle at both ends, literally. Yeah. Who else can help me? What other resources? And when people come to you and say, can I be of help? Instead of going, no, 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 I got it. Just stop for a minute and think, yeah, can you maybe pick up my other son from here? Or can you go get me some groceries? Or can you do some research for me? The little things. And now that my father's been gone for 15 years, you know, it's funny. I hear people say, including my brother, well, you never asked me for anything. So I just thought you had it. And I was like, didn't you see me with four kids and the dad and doing all this and juggling all of it? Didn't I look stressed? I mean, you couldn't offer it. But sometimes people think you would rather just do it yourself. You have to advocate for yourself as a caregiver. You just can't go it all the way alone. There's got to be something someone can do to take something off your plate so that you can be a better caregiver for the people that you love. Sometimes when there are other siblings in the picture, even when they're not the one who's Mm -hmm. in it every day, Mm -hmm. we need them to help us manage it financially. Mm -hmm. Did you have to do that dance with your brother? My, uh, that was one of the areas that my brother really let me go it alone was financially. He just was like, you know, she's the one with more financial means and she's got that part of it. And that's why I wanted him to step up more on getting, taking my father to the doctor, Mm -hmm. you know, um, checking in with them more, physically being there, giving of his time. And I do remember actually saying that to him, like, I'm paying for all of this and I'm traveling and I'm working and I got this big family. I need you to be there more. I, I do remember saying that a couple of times, maybe not as often as I should have. But the financial burden is crushing for both autism and Parkinson's. The costs are not swirling in my head this early in the morning right now, but they are, you know, Jean, they're through the roof. Uh, And I just obviously keep growing. For Parkinson's, you have people that are being diagnosed earlier and earlier, as my dad was young onset at 46. And so in the prime of their life, they can't work anymore. Right. So you have that that issue. And then with autism, just to immerse your child in the necessary early interventions costs a fortune and mostly comes out of pocket. So those are things that I wish I had had a, a gene to turn to and go, like, how do I manage all this? I was just sort of paying out of pocket, just doing it, you know, and blessed to have the resources to do it. But when I looked up at the end, I'm like, wow, I could have done that better. What I'm learning from people like you and other people moving forward is that there's so much valuable information that even if you have the resources, you're squandering it or you 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 don't have the tools to figure out how to do it better. That's why you see me jotting down notes because I'm learning more as, you know, there's going to be my mom. She's 81 going on 41. Excellent. So you don't think that she needs me, but she's the next, she's next up. Yeah. And I want to have all my ducks in a row, learn from the mistakes and pitfalls that I did with my, my dad and my son and uh, be more successful financially. Cause that's one area that I really need help in. Are there mistakes that you made that you can put a finger on? Oh, sure. Just just not having information, not being armed with information about how to best financially plan for my father. So he got Parkinson's in his 40s, but he was a writer for The Cosby Show at the time, and he was on the entire eight seasons, right? And so when he got those paychecks, what do I do with those? How do I allocate those? You know, I was his you know, power of attorney. Right. 
should I have saved them? Should I put them here? I was just thinking in my mind, he's not going to be able to work soon, and I'm going to have to figure out how to pay his rent, how to pay for his bills, all of that stuff. So I would have done that better. I don't think I managed that properly. Well, and at 19, you didn't have... You know, I, I mean, what you're, I what I'm hearing you say <laughs> is that you needed a plan. Yeah. And at 19, you're just connecting the dots, right? Mm-hmm. There are there are 59 year olds who don't have a plan, so it's very very hard. Thanks for to making do. me feel better. No, it, it's, he had a, an apartment in New York that my first thought was when he really started to get slowed down very badly and his Parkinson's progressed. I was in LA and I had to literally almost kidnap him from New York because he hated L.A., so he didn't want to come. <laughs> yeah, like some New Yorkers do. Um, he hated L.A. He did not want to come, and I had to literally force him on a plane to come live with me because I lived in L.A. And what's crazy is he had this beautiful apartment on Riverside Drive, and it really probably wasn't too much for me to just, you know, take care of it, keep it. But my first thought was, I gotta, I just got to get rid of everything because I need to take this money. And I sold that apartment. That's oh. my number one regret. <laughs> I'm still not over it because of what it's worth today. This was, you know, back Insane. in 92 or 3. Um, but I didn't know. Uh, no, and but- no one came to me and said, hold on to that. That's going to be, you know, worsome. You're going to need that later on down the line. So financial pitfalls, I've had many. Um, and, you know, life continues on. My mom is 81. She looks like she's going to live to 101. And so you have to think of that. Our parents are living longer. We are all going to live a right. lot longer, I think, than we ever expected. And that's why we got to have conversations Yes, like this one. Tell me what's going on now. You're, you're, you just finished shooting another season of your show? I did. So we have a, a family reality show called Meet the Peets. It was on another network uh, called for Pete's sake, but um, that network decided to pass on us moving forward. So Hallmark Channel came in and said, we like this family, we want to tell more stories. So we're continuing on as Meet the Pete's, and we're going to be airing um, February 18th, 2018 to 1818 um, on Hallmark Channel. Are you know, our... We're not your typical reality show because we're very positive, affirmational. Yeah. Um, you know, reality, all reality doesn't have to be conflict driven and ratchet and crazy. Sometimes it can be positive. Why not? So that's what we're doing. And one of the reasons why I want to do it, because people ask me all the time, why, why, why would you want to drag your family to reality? One of the reasons was to tell RJ's story. What's it like for a young man with autism coming of age, becoming an adult? How does he self-advocate, you know, and showing this team, we talked about Team RJ, what does that look like? Yeah. If I had seen a show like that when RJ was diagnosed at three, maybe a little glimpse into his future, I think that would have given us a lot more hope early on. And RJ's working. RJ's working. He's got a job with the Dodgers. Um, It's been an amazing year, went all the way to the World Series and missed it by one game. But, I mean, this is a boy who never had friends growing up, and now he has, like, a whole clubhouse full of friends. These young men have taken him on as a brother, as a a baby brother, and it's been awesome. And just having a job, what that's done for him. And you'll you'll be very proud to know that RJ is very good with his money. He does not play with that paycheck. When he gets that paycheck, he runs right to the whether it's $200 or yep. $2,000, he runs right to the bank. He deposits it. He doesn't touch his money. He spends all his money on maybe Panda Express for lunch. That's <laughs> He has a car payment. And other than that, and he, what do you, when it's automated? Autom- yep, he it pays com- it automatically. Automatically. And he... Um, and does he have a Roth IRA? Oh, you have him call me. Okay. 
Okay, Aunt Jean, we're going to be calling you. <laughs> he needs a Roth IRA, he, We're, we're going to put some of that money in a Roth IRA, and it can grow for his future, and he's going to be all good. So we're loving the fact that this is a kid that is not only understands how to plan for himself financially, but this is a kid that we were told would never, you know, drive, have friends, have a job. So we're blown away by RJ, and, and it's pretty cool. I want to show that on TV because I think that's a powerful message to show to autism families that, you you know, your kid can have a future. And really highlighting what the Dodgers are doing with him so that other corporations, the Microsofts, the Walgreens, the FedExes of the world, they're hiring these young people too. So that's why we decided to do the family reality. I'm really excited to be working with Hallmark Channel. It's a real blessing. And, um, yes, Roth IRA. Yep. Okay. All right. Holly Writing Robinson. Down Pete, on my notes. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Lee, to Sheila, to Holly for three fantastic but also really important conversations. Thank you to AARP for having us at the Caregiving Summit. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you like special episodes like this one, we'd love to know about that and what you think the topics should be. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. A special shout out to Afim Shapiro, who helped us produce this show in D.C. And join us next week when we will be back with Daniel Pink, author of the new book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. We'll talk soon.